Welcome to Open Source Startup Podcast. This is Tim from Essence VC and Robbie from Cowboy Ventures. We're super excited to have Kyle, which is a co-founder of Coder, your self-hosted remote development platform. So welcome, Kyle. Hey, guys. Happy to be here. Awesome. We're really excited to have you on. And where we always like to start with this podcast is at the very beginning. So Kyle, tell us where you came up with the idea for Coder. So Amar and I at the time were working on like Minecraft servers. Um, particularly, I think we were like 19 when the idea fully actually like came to inception. And at the time, a lot of people were just writing code on different machines where they were actually running the code. And so for us, that was like we were writing little Minecraft plugins on our computers then uploading them to our servers. And that was like not a particularly common use case. Like we didn't necessarily pattern match it into like a broad market. But, you know, it kind of made us evolve into this thesis that like in 10 years from now, will people, you know, be coding on their laptops and, and their local machines or, or somewhere in the cloud. And we kind of have a, you know, maybe a more evolved answer of that, less of a, a binary answer now. But that was like where the initial inception came from. Very cool. And so maybe give us a little bit of history then. Like what is Coder? I guess maybe you can talk about that. I think Coder, you have a product, but you have an open source project, right? So maybe give us an initial origin of why you even put the open source project out there. Right. And how did it kind of evolve from early I'll give you guys all the dirt. And so uh, and if you want to double click on anything, just let me know. So we started by releasing a consumer platform that you would sign up to coder.com and you would get a free computer uh, in under a second was like just a funny, arbitrary thing that we wanted to offer. And it was really consumer oriented. And one of the problems with that is that like your MacBook is actually like, exceptionally good. And it's actually really hard to compete with your MacBook. And like I have one of the new, I don't have the M3, but I have the M2. And it's like fantastic. And it's like so fast. And it's actually a lot faster than a lot of cloud compute even. And so, you know, the benefits for individuals were just kind of non-existent. And so we actually ended up shutting that product down after like only a couple months of it really running. Then we had like a cliche startup moment where everyone was like, oh, snap, we literally have nothing to do. And we actually did that. We brought everyone in the company into a room and we're like, hey, we actually have nothing to work on, but we're going to set up like a couple different groups to work on various like random tech things. And one of them at the time, this was like in 2019 or 2018, maybe. One of them at the time was like AI coding, which was not like a thing yet. I know it's like massive now. Another one was just like, yeah, I don't know, it was just like random stuff. And what ended up evolving was actually our open source. Tim, which is now like that's code server, our first piece of open source that really ever became popular. And yeah, from there, we built an enterprise platform, which became kind of like adopted by some of the world's largest enterprises. And there's like a bunch of rocky roads and stuff in there. And we ended up rewriting the product. And yeah, that's that's the end of the story was a lot shorter in the beginning. <laughs> but but the end of it was a lot more like company building and, you know, like hiring people and, and making mistakes and, and figuring stuff out. So you took us from beginning to today very, very quickly. We're going to dig into a bunch of things that happened along the way. So talk a bit about Code Server. You release it. It's VS Code in the browser. Like who initially starts using it? Like where did you get your early traction from? So Code Server was, so first of all, it's like primarily just a like unique distribution method on VS Code. And so I would, I'd say it was like primed for success just in like even the way that it was built. And like 99.999% of that work is like kudos to the VS Code team. Not anything we even did. We really just kind of wrapped it, redistributed it. But the initial real user for it, like it was the first time a browser or an IDE ever became in the browser. And so the first time where like development actually would feel like you were on your local machine, but in the browser. 
So kind of like that thin client experience. And it became actually the fastest growing project on GitHub ever, almost immediately, without us doing anything, which was very lucky. But I think just the idea kind of really resonated with people. So our initial traction, like who actually used it to like answer the question directly, is a lot of people in companies for actually like remote development, which is now what you know Coder does as a product. And a lot of individuals, you'll find like a million and one blog posts online where people are like, how I access my computer from my iPad or like random places. And a lot of them are using like code server and like tail scale and like random tech hodgepodge together. So a lot of hobbyists and a lot of enterprises. So I guess I'm very curious about the idea of code server because from I can see, it's the way to actually run VS code in some remote setting, basically, right? And it's taking care of ways to set up your environments and stuff like that. So I think back in like 2018, I don't think this is like common practice. We talked to a Replit founder back in the day or in our, our podcast as well. He was describing he was trying to create some kind of environments for people to actually program in. But your approach, I guess, talk about like what does code server do? Does it just launches VS Code in some browser? Like what else does it do? Like why do people find it to be intriguing? And where this is not something people normally do in the first place. So there's like, I'll call it like two camps. One I understand really well. The other one I don't actually understand particularly well. I'll give you the one I don't understand particularly well first. Like I understand it, but I don't like resonate with it as much. And those are like the hobbyists. And their real use case is like, I have like my desktop computer at home or I have like a little nook or something to the effect. And I leave to go to a coffee shop and I just want to be able to use that from anywhere really easily. Now you can do that with VS Code Remote and stuff like that today. But back then you really couldn't. And so it was kind of like innovative in that world. And a lot of people still use it for that use case today. But the use case I do understand a lot better is particularly tailored around the enterprise use case and like specifically for businesses. Specifically in enterprises, there's like, like you can't really like define any infrastructure that they will have because everyone has their absolutely most demonstrably unique project that for some reason depends on like 40 different things in the organization through like a random subset of VPCs. Or some like weird, just like culmination of things that ended up playing out. And that's why Code Server is really good, is because it's an IDE that just lets you be self hosted. And so, like, you can put it behind a firewall or inside of your infra where everything is still connected to your crazy, insane enterprise infrastructure that may or may not actually make sense, but no one's going to change it. And it gives you just like an extreme amount of flexibility. It's very similar to honestly even just setting up like Nginx or any other kind of like web server that you can just kind of like set it, forget it, and it's in your infra, and it's really easy to integrate. So I'm really curious because I would say like the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of browser-based IDs get hype, excitement. But like 2018, like Tim said, this wasn't a huge trend. So you seem to be kind of just ahead of things. Where did some of those insights come from? Because to your point, there's like the hobbyist use case and the enterprise use case. The enterprise use case is really the one you understand more and key in on. But that didn't come from, I assume, your experience working in an enterprise. So maybe talk a bit about how you even came to that insight. Like, were you just watching usage and understanding users? Like, where did your team get that understanding and conviction? I would say a lot of things not working just made us think in a way that was maybe a little more abstract. And so I think like one mistake that people are making is like, say you, Robbie and Tim, like if you want to get started on a project, and you have a MacBook, you're not going to pay someone $10 a month to use their computer. Even though it's just 10 bucks a month, you'd have to be getting like a lot of value even for you to be like, I'm going to start using something that's not my MacBook. I'm really familiar with my MacBook. It's like awesome. So like 
we really try to prove like actuated value, I suppose. And like your MacBook's really cheap. You can have it for five years, spend like a thousand dollars on it. You can't compete with that in cloud infrastructure costs on like a one-on-one, particularly for an individual. And so like our insight was really just like individuals should never pay us money for this. They should go buy a MacBook. And so that's particularly why we went enterprise because an enterprise, you know, like let's say us three are in a company and we have 500 engineers inside of our organization. If I tell everyone to upgrade our version of Java, I'm going to get like some error rate on that. Someone will be like, I messed this up. Now my whole computer's new because I'm going to lose like three days of productivity. And even if that happens just like a couple of times, you want the org to be swimming in a direction where like you could feasibly, you know, like upgrade your version of Java like six times in a year if you wanted to, right? And it's not a big deal, but yeah. Yeah, one wonder like what is the way you gain adoption and that turn into you want to start a company? It sounds like people, a lot of people just want to run a way to replicate their environments or connect to existing environments. Did you have enterprise adoption premium from day one already? Like that's just clear to you? Like, okay, hobbyists, it's just hobbyists. Here's all the people and let's just focus on enterprise. Like, was that clear cut of a focus for you or... Did you get mostly hobbyists and slowly transition? I was just curious, how did the adoption timeline work with you? And how did you thought about even considering iterating on your, your product early days towards enterprise? In the early days, there actually just wasn't much signal at all because like no one really cared about remote development. Even just like conceptually, it like wasn't a high item on people's lists. And I think like even if you have a I always like put it in the abstract because I think it just makes a lot of sense. If you even have like a bad product in a really good market, you'll just attract the worst customers, but you'll still get something. You'll see still like a lot of signals from people. And back in that day, the signal rate was just really low. And so like even us deciding to go enterprise, it was not calculated. I think like most people in life, some people lie about it, but I think like most people in life, we kind of like fell into it from just like understanding different signals from the market and just being like, oh, like, we seem to be getting pulled more in this direction where we actually provide value, if that makes sense. So no, Tim, it was not obvious to us at all. We're like super consumer people from day one because we like never worked in an enterprise before Coder. And so like all of these problems that I'm talking about where it's like, you know, services have to talk to other services and all this like complex infra, I think is purely learned from just like a bunch of stuff not working for the most part. Yeah, so I'm curious early on. So you're getting traction because you haven't worked in a company before, it was probably like trying to assess the quality of traction, where there was opportunity, like that was still pretty new to you, but you're seeing things kind of working. And then I read that you guys cold emailed and that's how you got your first funding. At what point were you like, okay, there's something here, we need funding because we want to scale our team. Like, And then you just cold reached out to, I think from Austin, a bunch of VCs, which is a really hard way to fundraise. But I mean, kudos to you guys for being successful. Like kind of walk us through that point in time where you're like, okay, we have something. What gave you that conviction? And then your strategy and how you managed to make it work when a lot of other founders, like that's a tough route to go. So that was purely uh, John Andrew, like our other co-founder, who just like purely emailed all the investors. Amar and I were like really focused on tech. And so that was like big kudos to him. I think uh, something that we noticed, like when we were just fundraising, we just needed to have something that was public and like usable and like show real traction because we had like nothing under our belts. And so I would say like that was really just the primary thing that we targeted on. We got declined by like probably like 80 BCs, maybe more, maybe like 100 BCs. And this was particularly before we like launched anything that was like available on Coder.com for people to try. As soon as we did that, we had a lot more like real investor interest, I guess. And so, like, that's when we got, like, Andy from Uncork and, and Alex from Redpoint. They were 
the guys who led our seed. But yeah, it was really hard. It just took like a lot of like batting our, our heads against the wall. And like a lot of our initial asks, even for fundraising, weren't exactly like rationalized. At the time, even when we were raising capital, I wouldn't say it was particularly strategic necessarily, or we particularly had a strategic mindset about it of being like, here's what we're going to do with the capital to like maximize value. It was more so that like we had conviction on an idea and a space. And we were like, we'll keep executing in relatively the same way that we are. And we'll like slowly iterate until we figure out the space. And so I noticed there's Coder V1 and then Coder V2. And it looks like to me, Coder V1 is sort of like the code server self-hosted path. And Coder V2 is more on the product. So maybe explain to us what is the differences between these. And I guess your users, if you're coming from open source, typically you're like, I'm just going to run it myself. And when I see the need, then I'll go to the cloud-hosted product. So maybe talk about like how did you start with V1 and what led you to V2 and what's some learnings in between that? Yeah. So essentially in the company history, what happened is we released CodeServer and then we released V1. Now the V1 of our product was more so a hodgepodge, not built a lot on vision. This was like us learning how to be an enterprise company. I would say. And so we built like every customer ask period, even if it was just like some jank that didn't really make a lot of sense into a cohesive vision. But we were like, we need to prove out this market in order to say like, there's like some massive opportunity. Because of course, naturally, when you raise a lot of venture capital, like you have to produce a lot of revenue as well. And so you need to like prove that a market can actually generate a lot of revenue as well. And so the B1 of our product was really kind of designed to hook like initial traction. And we learned a lot of lessons through that time. And so like the V1 product was bad, just in the sense that it was like a hodgepodge. It was like not really like vision oriented. It wasn't like at the right level of abstraction. I would just call it bad software. I wouldn't quite call it malware, but I would maybe call it somewhere tangentially to it. Yeah, so then the V2 of our product is really made with all of our like learnings in mind and like very much so intentionally crafted to tailor the enterprise and tailor like the self-hosted audience in entirety. And so like the V1 of our product, we kind of like sweep under the rug. And like most of our current customers don't even know about the V1 of our product and don't even consider it, which is great. That's like what we intentionally kind of, you know, swept under the rug. But it was an interesting transition in the company. And it was hard to transition people from V1 to V2 because we just did a straight up break. You had to completely nuke your code deployment and start anew. So I'm curious, particularly for V2 of the product, what were some of the things, maybe even before you started building, that you said, okay, an amazing remote development experience has... X, like it has a great developer experience, which we define this way, or like what was kind of your process of figuring out what an amazing product in your category would look like? I think the most important thing to us that I think some people are still learning in the market is like some of our competitors is, you know, like we can't dictate how some of these world's largest enterprises will write software at all. Very similar to how like, you know, if you wanted to start a project, I could never tell you the way that you should write the project. You can have a tutorial. But you can always fork away from a tutorial. And I think one problem is like a lot of the platforms will say like you have to develop in X way, you have to develop in a container, or you have to develop doing whatever. And some of the organizations that use Coder, they'll like deploy a database and a container and a VM and like 15 other crazy things as part of a development environment. And that's great. Because like moving your machine just into the cloud, it's enough for some organizations. But what you really want to do is like actually leverage like say Google Cloud. And like spin up like a Postgres instance or spin up like some cloud functions as part of your development environment. Like, I don't know. But I would say that was the most important idea for us when building V2 is just like, how can we encompass everything 
not just some things and, and not make it like in a janky way. Yeah, an example of like a terrible feature request that we got in V1 that we would satisfy is people would be like, hey, could you let us like add like labels to pods in Kubernetes? Or like just something that's like really just strange for us to even do because it's like you could technically just do that yourself. And so Coder became this really weird, you know, the V1 of our product became this really weird provisioning layer where like if enough people were using it, we would have ended up just remaking Terraform anyways. So I wonder, you know, just given how new this is, like hobbyists in the world, it's easy for them to start because they have no security. I mean, they have some security, but very little, like compared to any enterprise. But now enterprises, right, learn to use the cloud is already pretty difficult. Now if you're moving development into the cloud, I'm sure there's like a pretty big jump. Was your early adopters pretty much already bought in or have already tried moving into development into the cloud? Or did you have to go and evangelize into enterprise yourself? Like, hey, try this out, you know, do some pilots, do some testing to get comfortable. Like, I wondered how much of the educational process you need to do and how did you find your early champions in some level? Like, what does that actually feel like? Is it early believers or is there a paradigm you're writing on its own too? I was just curious, like, how did that grow? So something that helped us a lot was actually the release of Codespaces from GitHub. Particularly because, like, when it came out, we were like naive founders and we were like, oh, we're about to get squish squashed naturally. But our investors were like, this is fantastic because it shows there's actually a market. And, you know, like, big players will always show up when there's money to be made. And so I think you really want to ride on the coattails of a market. You don't really want to have to force a market into existence. I'm sure some people have, but I think it's like exceptionally hard to do that. And, you know, we tried to do that for a while. I think we were like a little early to the game. And it was really hard trying to like convince people that something's a priority. I think now and like how we've gotten some of our early traction is like we did successfully convince some people that it's a priority. But now, fortunately, we get like a lot of socialization between our customers. And that's actually a big part of the kind of way that we even scale right now is like someone's like, you know, we'll connect various customers, for example, to get new customers. And so like the seeding process was, I would say, in big parts on the on the coattails of people are just like Googling for something in the space. It was also a good sign for us that we're in the right market because a lot of people would try to build Coder themselves internally and then eventually end up replacing that system with Coder. And I would say like, honestly, about all of our like extremely high tech customers have tried that. And like some of them can succeed because they can totally build it themselves, but they're also just willing to pay because like the price of Coder is, is like, you know, maybe they'll pay for like the same cost of one engineer a year or something to the effect. Yeah, so I feel like the last probably like two years, it feels like there's just been this huge movement, not just for development and coding, but for a lot of applications to be browser-based and like all the potential for them. And some have been better than others where like some applications just don't need to be browser-based. But maybe at like the most fundamental level, like today, so you had this early instinct from your experience that this would be the way that coding would be done in the future. Can you like describe specifically why or what maybe some of the early like use cases or applications? Like, is it when there's a certain team size where just like having kind of real time syncing matters the most? Like, what are the things that you saw that now are really coming to light, which is making this like a really big category and more of a trend? I think something that particularly attracted us at the beginning was like, it's like I have no fascination to do like everything in my life through the browser at all, or like no innate fascination. Or I have fascination, but maybe no like innate draw to be like, I really want to code in the browser or something to the effect. Maybe the more interesting thing initially was like just being able to do it. 
was like something that was really fascinating. It was like, oh, this is interesting. And the majority of the time, I don't even code in the browser, like 99.9% of the time I code from like my local VS code. But the 0.1% of the time that I do go to the browser, it's pretty nice. And it's like, just like fascinating. And it's like interesting. And I think that was actually a big part of our entry point that we didn't really realize until later, I guess. And like some of the specific use cases to answer your question are like, I would mostly say for people that just want to be particularly mobile is actually really the primary user. From our telemetry, the majority of people do connect through like, you know, the local VS code. And like we make that like a really, really good experience intentionally. I think it's more so just an exceptionally nice demo, which actually helps it a lot. Like when people are demoing the product and they're like trying it for the first time and you're like just clicking around and you get like a really nice experience where you're like, oh, and that's VS code. I use VS code. It feels like very familiar and very at home. And so I don't know if that exactly answers the question, but I think that's a big part of it. So I guess you already kind of mentioned it, but one of the part of the hardest part, I feel like building a product in this space is because every company's setup is different, but your product has to work in all situations. So I assume that's the coder V1 to V2 transition is also able to re-architect with all the learnings of your customers. You already mentioned like there's a lot of buy versus build mentality, especially coming with developers. You also need to be able to have enough complexity and enough momentum on your own. So what is like a point you saw your product is like crosses through like, okay, this is definitely not something people want to be building anymore. I wonder like what is a version of Coder that you really remember? And was that easy to navigate towards? Like, I know it just takes time to build or there's some hard trade-off choices you kind of have to make that made it really hard early days. So any any learnings around that? Because a lot of people in the dev tool space face similar challenges. It's like, I don't know, there's so many people who want different things. You know, how do I actually even like figure out what to do first? A lot of the reason that people replace their like internal platform that they ended up building, well, it's like twofold. One, companies love to have like another business that they can like yell at, which is great. Particularly for even like insurance, right? Like if you're like whole R&D department is like dependent on a product, ideally it's like really rock solid and you have like a lot of social proof as to like why something wouldn't just randomly break. I think that's maybe the biggest reason actually even and like a big part of us being open source is people can just see that like a lot of other companies are using our product. And so there's like some like mutual assurance when like, you know, you can kind of like fist bump someone and just be like, oh, you know, at least if this thing sinks to the ground, we're both sinking to the ground and we're both massive companies and it's working. And so I actually think that was a really large part of it. And it still continues to be a large part of like even how we do our sales right now. If we're selling to a, a really high tech customer, we'll introduce another high tech customer and we'll just be like, you know, you can be extremely raw on like both the good, the bad and the ugly of Coder. And I think people really appreciate that. I think particularly in build versus buy, because, you know, I think everyone prefers to buy as long as like the expected cost is a lot lower. And I think, you know, when you take into account that like, you know, let's say you have 500 engineers, you're spending a lot of money each year on just salary generally. And if those engineers don't work for like, you know, even five days a year because your developer platform is down for whatever reason, you know, it's probably worth it to just pay us a little bit of money and, and you have some, some assurances. Yeah, let's talk a bit about how you grew your community. If there are like specific things that your team did, we've heard from other folks where there are like pieces of content that really helped them go viral and then kind of like help the growth in their community. Or if you were able to tap into the Terraform community or adjacent communities, like what were some of the growth hacky things that you learned that kind of helped you get early momentum? 
I would say I actually have a really mundane answer for this because I think we kind of got lucky with the growth of Code Server. But honestly, like we we primarily plugged Coder through the README and Code Server, and Code Server just had like an extreme amount of traffic. Other things that we did, I think we had like decent developer marketing esque stuff, but not like really intentionally. We care very much about like being very idiomatic with our software, I guess. And I do think that helped. Maybe not like in a growth hacky way as much, but I think more so people are really comfortable contributing to our code base. And so a lot of our customers actually contribute back. And I think that's how you get like super fans who are like probably never going to stop using Coder. And I think that compounds really quickly. Yeah, that's probably actually if I had about that's probably our best maybe like growth hack is like as soon as we get someone who's a super fan, we try to nurture them to be like even more of a super fan if possible. So yeah, what is the way you nurture super fans? Like, did you have some kind of program where you're sending prices or gifts? You know, I've seen actually different dev tool companies do different things, which are very, very interesting. Like, what's something you guys did that made your super fans felt super? I'll actually add customers of ours directly to our GitHub repo as being like just a contributor and they can like open branches if they want to and they can use like all of our internal stuff um, like deploying random branches and like poking around and actually that just makes people feel really involved because we want them to like naturally it's like mutually beneficial they want to be able to like just open up pull requests have them reviewed by our team as if they're like a team member and i think that's probably the biggest thing is we try to like treat a lot of our customers like if someone's like i really want to contribute to x of course you can in open source anyways but, you know, we'll add them to the repo and we'll make sure that they can manually tag people and run CI without having to ask us. And it feels like you're like really just an integrated like part of, of the company and as if it's like you're working on it inside of your own company. And that's like really the experience we try to deliver. I would say one more thing that we do that is particularly unique in enterprise software and we've gotten really good feedback on. We will do releases just to support a single customer and we don't care. And we do not do very intentionally we design our software, you know, there's no intermediary process between merging something into the main branch and, and doing a release. We have like really good tests and really good integration tests and end-to-end tests. And so, you know, there have been times where customers reported an issue, we'll fix it and do a release within like 10 minutes and they can upgrade. And that's like a magical experience as a customer that I think is particularly rare in our space. Yeah, I love the super fan community focus. I'm curious how your team juggles that or how you've learned to juggle being like so in tune with the community, being focused on releases, finding your super fans, and then now focusing on paid product. Like, do you kind of split efforts among the team? Is everyone kind of working on everything? How do you learn to do that? Because that's probably one of the hardest things that any open source founder deals with. You're kind of building two companies at the same time. So for, for us, one thing we're like very fortunate about with our space of open source is like some hobbyists will use, you know, and we can we can tell from telemetry, like the vast majority of our daily active users are customers or prospective customers. And so like our product specifically tailors to organizations like very intentionally well and isn't as much like a classical open source motion. I guess not as much a classical like open core motion even. We view the open source as like being a really good distribution method and like we'll always be open source for that reason. It's like really good at, at, at distribution, like helping our funnel and, and giving people a lot of trust. And I believe in working out in the open generally. But I wouldn't say we operate our project like Coder, particularly like an open source project as much. There's not really like an open source community and an enterprise community. There's kind of like the majority of our users are enterprise. And so we're like an open source enterprise product. 
if that makes sense. And so some features are available in the open source, some in the enterprise, and some people get grumpy about certain things not being, you know, where they want them to be. But we're pretty receptive generally. And I wouldn't say we're too like harsh on it. I think we're fortunate that in our product space, people will want to pay us money even for like really good support and to kind of be partners with us anyways. So I was just curious, like how does your content strategy works? We do see a lot of, especially developer products, content actually plays quite a big role to get people to be aware and giving your product is technical, but you're not selling like a database. You're not talking about internals of how Coder works, right? Like looking at the posts you've done, a lot of them is centered around like the concept of coding remotely, actually. What are like the biggest surprises or learnings when it comes to like writing content? What are things that worked and what are things that didn't work? And I'm curious that you have an iPad developing on your iPad as well. Like that actually seemed to have the highest Hacker News points. So I don't know how much, how big of that post was, but just curious, like what, yeah, some of the major learnings from that will be great. So I would say like something that I learned is like particularly tailoring content to where your market is at. It was like a really important thing. And it's something that we still have not mastered by any means. We're still in a very much work in progress point with that. Let's say like, you know, we had like a really viral post on like coding on an iPad. And I think the reason that was so popular is it was just like really fun and novel and like interesting at the time because the space was so new. And so when a space is really new, you'll get a lot of like the hacker-esque people who are like, what can I tinker with in this like brand new space? It's like fascinating. But, you know, as like a market ages, I think like the appeal of tinkering with something is not particularly interesting. Like I've never taken apart like my magic keyboard but I'm sure when the Magic Keyboard was just released, the number of people that did, you know, each year was probably like 100x what it is right now. And so I think as we move like downstream, it's a lot more like education on the actual value prop, less on like the here's how you can hack around with our software as much. I would say the iPad Post is the only one that really drove like anything extremely novel in levels of like traffic, I would say, to the site. And so I would say we're still figuring that out, to be honest, on like what that looks like for where the market is right now. It's also really hard to tell where a market is, you know, because like sometimes you're like, oh, this is like rocket shipping. And sometimes you're like, what's going on? It's difficult to gauge too. We've had a lot of founders on this podcast. And I think one of the things that they struggle with is figuring out what their growth trajectory should be from a community, but then also like monetization standpoint, especially once they kind of hit the point where they release their paid product and it's out there, it's generating revenue and they're trying to figure out like, okay, like how do we kind of tinker on both like have you guys do you kind of have a model of or starting to get one of okay we're gonna like look for these types of users that's who is going to be like a good target for us to talk to about our paid product like how have you kind of figured out your for lack of better terminology like funnel or the way you help users make that transition i would say we particularly segmented by like the actual value that someone can get from coder and so something that we're like very conscious of specifically in the early market is like, we don't want to convince someone that there's value there when there's like a really high likelihood that there isn't like no one ever wants to do that. But we're, I think, particularly conscious of doing that because a lot of people think they maybe need what Coder offers. And so an example of what that is, is like, Robbie, if you, Tim and I were starting a company and you were like, we should use Coder, I'd be like, no, we should not use Coder because we just don't have this problem. Right. You know, if you want us to upgrade our versions of Python, you would send us a Slack message. You'd be like, upgrade it. If something messes up, I'll help you. It'll take 10 minutes. I don't care. And so, like, I think that's probably one of our biggest learnings. Like, we kind of turn away organizations that don't have hundreds of engineers, even if they're like, I want to buy coder. 
you know, hundreds or thousands, because you really just don't have like the problem that we particularly actually provide value for. And so I think long term, you'd either be an unhappy customer, or maybe you'd end up churning, or you wouldn't give us the feedback that like really narrows in on where we deliver the most value. Does that make sense? So that's probably like, the biggest thing we learned is just like particularly tailoring where we deliver the most value to where we set the target. So I think one nuance about products like remote or any developer environment is actually defining what the developer environment is. And I found it to be actually quite difficult. There is many complexities potentially, and every team might have something different and it also needs to evolve. And so I wonder what are some big learnings even around that? Like what was the way you get your customers to actually even have a ID running there like you said, there's networking, there's security, there's there's files and all that stuff. Somebody has to sit down and do something to port over what they have, test it or run it. Like, do you have a way to help them in that process? Or I'm just curious what you found to be the best path and learnings on getting your user to actually adopt and use and fully move to Coder. Okay, so there's two parts. I'll, I'll answer that. The first one is we actually just use Terraform which is very intentional. And so like what Terraform really lets you do is just define infrastructure as code. And like so many organizations in the world already use Terraform. And something we realized from the V1 of our product, like provisioning's really solved. Like provisioning cloud compute and like all this stuff that's solved, that's not really a problem space that we have any business innovating on further because we'd probably just do a worse job. It's already really good. And so the way that it really works is like people buy coder to operate as a SaaS inside of their organization as like an operator. And so like a DevOps or a platform team will buy Coder, offer it as a SaaS to all of their devs internally, and then advocate for it essentially as kind of like a proper service inside of the company. And generally the biggest ways that they do that is by like giving them a development environment that has more than what they're able to have on their local machine. And so an example of that is like some customers will give a lot of resources, a lot of like really powerful cloud machines. You need a lot of money to do that. Some customers will give people more access to more services because it's inside of their firewall naturally and like only this little escape hatch through coder is possibly exposed security wise it's something we're really working on right now is to like do more like sales enablement for these people to like actually be able to evangelize coder internally but one thing that's really funny tim is like people will literally send like email blasts to all of their engineers on being like we upgraded our version of coder like here are new things and so it's something we're actually building out internally right now is like a system to make it easier for people to evangelize coder internally, even on these little carrots that they end up building. But we have a customer like in financial services, a really big one, and they uh, essentially have like two perimeters of coder and one's like accesses all of their like on-prem infrastructure that everyone usually has a very difficult time accessing. And so like that's like their big carrot, essentially, that gets people to move to, to the system. So we've touched on a lot from V1 all the way till today. If you kind of think through the last five-year journey, what are some of the like most pivotal moments that the companies went through, either from a product standpoint or team? Like When you kind of reflect back, what are those kind of like major moments that have brought you to where you are now? I would say like just kind of like chipping away at an underlying thesis, I guess, is probably like the theme of all of them wrapped together. The specific points are like when we open source code server, it like showed that there is like a market in this space. And that was really like the opening of the doors that like something's going on here. And then, you know, when we got our first big enterprise customers on our V1 product, that was a signaling that like, okay, maybe we're like moving in the right direction, generally. And then when we released the V2 of our product, 
I think it really showed that now that everything's abstract, that like the ability to like grow the space is kind of on on the space itself, and we're no longer like a technology limitation, if that makes sense. And so I would say those are like three absolutely like pivotal moments in the company. So what's the hardest lessons you have to learn? Consumer now shifting all the way to like enterprise infrastructure company. I'm sure just even learning how to sell to any enterprise is like a brand new journey. I've met some founders. I think the idea sounds nice, but then when they're actually going through it, like I realize it's such what we're painful can ever imagine. And some even don't want to do it a long term. And so what do you think is your hardest parts to actually need to learn for you to adopt and learn in, in this new transition? And how did you learn? I would say maybe the single hardest thing that I learned is just being very particular about who you hire can make like the most significant world of a difference. And so like, I don't even do our selling and I've never really honestly been the main character in our selling. And like, I feel super fortunate for that. We have like an amazing VP of sales, his name's Mark. And I think just like finding those exceptional hires and those like rare people that you can quite honestly kind of build like a cult around some ideology with is probably like the biggest learning. And you kind of really have to build this like weird cult at the beginning to get people to like, just like, go after something that maybe doesn't make a lot of sense. Because if it made a lot of sense point in time, I'm not sure, you know, I think everyone would be doing it. But that was probably like the hardest learning. Because it's like, you know, a lot of people will will teach you the counter, at least from my perspective of maybe like not building as much of a cult. And that's maybe like my biggest learning is to honestly just be very careful on hiring and honestly hire a lot slower than people will even tell you that you should. Because like the, the right hire makes like a 10x difference and the, and the wrong hire also does in the in the wrong direction and slows you down and like slowing down really you know it compounds really heavily so can you describe this cult because i'm trying to understand what you actually mean here sounds like you're saying of course hiring top talent is, is super important in a lot of functions but how does this cult come in are you talking about your company culture to attract people or yeah so let me just elaborate there so, so i think a lot of startups inadvertently tell people what they want to hear instead of maybe what the actual truth is. But you end up with like a really bad filter in that case. And so I'll give you an example. Let's say we're in the seed stage. And I'm like, hey, Tim, you can join the team as we'll say, like, you know, head of marketing. And, you know, we're in an early space. And we're working through some things. And, and you know, but stuff's going great. We have early signs from customers. But the honest answer when we we're at the seed stage was like, we don't know what's going on. <laughs> we're in a super early market. And what you really need to believe in is that like in 10 years from now, this market won't be early anymore. And it will actually have realized into like a multi-billion dollar opportunity. And we're just going to try really hard to chip away at it. And your play in that will be the entire ecosphere of marketing, plus probably a little bit of everything else. And so I think that's what I mean by cult is maybe, you know, more so just by being extremely candid to people, you end up with people that are insane enough to jump off the deep end with you. And I think people frequently aren't candid enough, maybe even to themselves in that world. And I'm sure I've, I mean, I've played that fault a million times in my life. Everyone wants to join a rocket ship. It's the worst filter in the world. <laughs> There's not a single person who doesn't want to join a really fast growing company, but you find the unique people who want to actually build a rocket ship. And I think most people describe something like a build and a takeoff at the same time instead of just a build. I love that. This is actually something that I feel like for first time founders is a really hard learning where they spend a lot of time trying to convince. Oftentimes it's folks who are at bigger companies to join their startup. And 
to some level say like, oh, it's not that risky. Like we have, it's like, no, it's super risky. Like you're either on board with where we're at or you're not a good fit. So I think that's really good advice. Any other final pieces of advice for maybe yourself four or five years ago or for other founders that are earlier in their journey? I would say that's probably honestly my biggest piece of learning. Something that Amar and I do today to this point is we actually like will actively undersell candidates very intentionally because like the lesson of like everyone wants to join a rocket ship is also what you describe. And I think particularly in venture, a lot of people are taught to like pitch the dream and like the absolute vision. And I think people just get trained to do that. And it can be really dangerous because a lot of people will get sold on a vision and it, as if it's reality or as if it comes a lot faster than you might expect. And, you know, like say in our market, like our market's taken five years to mature. And if we would have hired someone five years ago, and like some of the people have been with us the whole time. But, you know, if you hire an executive five years ago and you're like, hey, this is going to take at least 10 years for you to probably make money or like have some form of exit, you're going to get a lot more peculiar people <laughs> that are in the pipeline. And that's probably even a better thing, but you'll get a lot smaller pipeline. So, you know, and you obviously don't know the time horizon and everyone's optimistic and everyone's like, no, nah, this will happen in like next year for sure. But I think even maybe being a bit more pessimistic ends up getting you some of the better people. Well, Kyle, this was awesome. Thank you so much for doing this with us. There are tons of great nuggets in here for early stage founders. Thanks for having me. 